Welcome to the Christchurch Oceanside Podcast, a faith community on Vancouver Island within the Anglican Network in Canada. We invite you to check out our website at ChristchurchOceanside.ca, or if you're on Vancouver Island, join us on a Sunday in the News Bay. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor, Father Ryan Matchett. We hope you enjoy. Bless you. from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 7, beginning in verse 24 to the end of verse 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall this is the gospel of our lord jesus christ thanks be to thee lord christ well friends welcome back to the christchurch oceanside podcast We are continuing our series here today on The Rock. We took a break last week and now we're coming back to it. A couple weeks ago we looked at common mistakes made when founding a life in a home um, and how Jesus offers us a better way, a more stable way. Now if you missed that, you might find it worth going back to. But this week what we're going to do is begin looking at how A life founded on Jesus and his teachings deal with the very real threat and impact of storms. Jesus describes them with these words. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, our culture, our time kind of has some interesting relationships to and responses to the ideas of storms. I think we have a conflicted relationship with conflicting ideas and expectations. I think the first is we live with this expectation that we should not have to face any storms, any hardship, or any suffering. We believe that we should be completely insulated from them somehow. And because of this, we as a society are very suffering adverse. And and I think that poses a lot of different problems that we don't have time to explore here today. The second, though, is that we tend to celebrate those who face the storms and overcome them by sheer will and determination. We do see value in the struggle, especially in other people. And... There's a pride in having withstood the test that I think we actually really look up to. But we don't like it so much 
for ourselves. Now, the third one is that people tend to silently suffer in and among storms. And this is a sad thing, I think, especially for men, is that there's emotional pain and stress and past woundings that we don't talk about very often. The fourth is a really common one. I think it's increasingly common and troubling, and that is a disassociation. That when storms come and hardships are there, we numb out from the feeling and the impact. We just try not to think about it. We try not to process it. And I think in doing so, we actually avoid meaningful repair from the impacts from it. The last one is survivalism. And that is that storms come and we just seek, as soon as they're over, to put the shack back together again and try to move on. Now, growing up in the prairies, I heard a story about the Great Plains buffalo and how they didn't like water or storms. So they learned that when they see storm clouds coming, they run towards the storm instead of away from it. By doing so, they sometimes would have the storm pass right over them without getting wet, or at least reduce their time in the storm. On the other hand, if they were to run away from the storm, it would inevitably catch up to them. And they would also increase their time in the storm by then running with it. I think it's a good analogy to go, we actually need to face these storms as part of our reality. Now, when we think about the history of kind of storms, the way the world and culture has thought about these things for many years, Scripture is really helpful for this because in Scripture, storms are seen as the result of a world broken by human sin. And it, storms are often talked about as like these tools of chaos. That in a world that's broken by sin, chaos seems to reign. And even the Old Testament and the ancient Near East, you have these chaos monsters. This is what I spent um, my summer holidays reading about was the book of Job and Behemoth and Leviathan. And these ideas of these kind of chaos monsters at work within the world. I think for much of human history, the imagery of a storm captured the chaos of that world around and the factors of which one could not control. Famines, wars, natural disasters, all of these things are outside of our scope to impact. Now, in Canada, though, I think there's a great deal of insulation for the average person from those types of concerns. I think especially since the Cold War, there was considerable peace in the West, at least, leading up until the last about 14 years, where I think global uncertainty has really begun to rear its head in a way that we now feel more. But storms are not just all global. Storms can also be through personal tragedy, disease, and come in the midst of relationships. And it can be a storm of the body, the mind, the soul, and the heart. If you speak to somebody who is in the midst of homelessness or facing addictions or things like that, there's usually significant storms that took place in their life that led to the brokenness and, and ruin that they're experiencing now. I think that's true of all of us. 
But storms in the way of Jesus are a bit different. Storms are viewed as, as something else because God doesn't promise that storms will not come. Rather, he warns us quite consistently that they will. But what God does do is promise and assure us that Christ is with us and is Lord over the storm. For God and for his people, storms are not threats, but assets to be used for his good purposes. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't have impact, and they certainly have impact. But Jesus uses that impact to build anew in and upon, and upon himself as improvement. So what storms do in the way of Jesus is they reveal the parts of our lives built upon shifting sands. The insufficiencies and instabilities of the life, the relationships, the families and patterns we have built. And rather than responding to that with, say, disappointment or resentment, or when a storm comes and it has this major impact, maybe feelings of failure, instead Jesus wants to see it as an opportune time to restore, to rebuild, to repair, to do beautiful good work. So how do we first identify a storm? I think that might be helpful. Now, I don't want to overdo it by saying that this is what Jesus meant when he gives these descriptors. And so we don't want to go further than the scriptures here on this. But I do actually think it actually gives us a helpful categories to consider. The four things that he mentions are this, that rain falls, wind blows, floods come, and they beat on that house. And the result of that, the fifth thing, is that it fell and great was the fall. I'll just consider these categories quickly for a second. The idea of the rain falling, I think that's just this universal idea that storms come down on us. They just come out of thin air and they come upon us. This idea of the wind blowing, though, is more direct. It's coming at us. It's specific and it's personal. And thirdly, this idea of the floods coming, this is where the storm, storm gets in. Rain falls, it's coming down. Wind blows, it's coming out. Floods came, it's coming in. It's impacting you or others in your home. And it's, I think if we're honest, this happens more often and, more, and it's more common than we allow ourselves to realize. But where this culminates to is Jesus says it beat on that house. It's a breaking of the house. It's a ripping, a tearing, a destroying. Now, what we know is that two things ultimately hold a house together against external pressures. The first is secure attachment. Is it all fastened together? But even more importantly, is it fastened down? Is it attached? The second is load distribution. The weight or force of external pressure should find itself coming up against the strength of the foundation, which Jesus calls the rock. Without these things, the result is that the house itself, which was made for security and safety and stability, now becomes a liability because it falls. And great was the fall. And what that is, is it's people damage. 
The storm starts with damaging the house, the structure, but where it ends is with damaging the people within it. So when this happens, which I think is inevitable, when storms come in your life and you see it, you identify there's it's coming down on me, it's coming at me, and it's coming into the house, and it's beating us, and it's breaking us, and things are starting to fall down around us. When that happens, how do we recover from that? Now, the most common steps I think people take after, after a storm, like just the average person, I think the first thing is they just feel a sense of relief. I'm just glad it's over. But the second thing that tends to come out that I hear most often from people is this sense of punishment. Punishing themselves, punishing the house, the systems they built, punishing their coping responses. And I think the reason for that is because fundamentally they don't feel like they were good enough. They weren't strong enough or stable enough or secure enough. So there's anger, punishment. But then the next step is really just to try and get back to normal. Same system, same expectations, but hoping for a different result. That's not true recovery after a storm. The only true recovery is to reattach to Jesus, to receive his salvation, and build anew upon him the rock. So how, after a storm, once we've identified that we've gone through one, could be just a day, could be a quick quick storm, could have lasted months, could be years. But once we've identified it, how do we recover from it in the way of Jesus? I think the vision is that in Jesus we rebuild, for real. So I want to walk through the four main aspects of the gospel, of the saving work of Jesus today. I'm going a bit slower here online than I will be in person, because I want you to be able to come back to this and kind of follow it. Hear the questions I'm asking, pause to write them out. If you need some kind of deeper process to understand what you've just been through and the impact it's had on you, I hope that this kind of process would serve you. So where we begin is with Jesus's life. Think of this as a bit of an inspection, not a bad one, where Jesus shows up and inspects everything and goes fail or pass. Instead, Jesus is a renovator. Jesus is coming to restore, to fix, to rebuild, and to, uh, I think, lead into true dreams and desires being built that God has placed in us a desire to build a life in a home that's right and good. And Jesus is the one that's coming to do that. So the inspection process is seeking to highlight anything that's falling short of that, but also to assess the damage and the impact that the storm has had upon you so that he can begin his redemptive work. So we always begin in Jesus's life that with his divinity that he reveals God's will and desire for your life is that it would be built upon Jesus. This is the teaching that we're in right now. He wants your heart, your home, and your life attached to God in Jesus. And instead of asking, 
why did God do this to us with this storm? The better question to ask is, what is God seeking to do in us through the person and work of Jesus? Because we know that's his will. We know that's his desire. The answer to every question is, why is this happening? Is because God wants us to grow more into Jesus. As we move to Jesus' humanity, his divinity reveals the will of God, but his humanity meets us in the reality of where we're at. And he leads us into that reality, to our true selves and to deeper connection with others. And he does this with this beautiful comfort where we're known by him, comforted by him in the midst of our grief and the life that we live in a broken world. So some key questions to ask about your recent past, about the storm that you've just been through, or maybe you're currently in, is what happened? Like, what are the circumstances? And what's the impact being on you and on others? To be really honest with yourself, if you're journaling to go, where am I really at? And here are a few questions to help kind of unpack that. Let's begin with, so we've written down our circumstances. Now let's consider Where's my body at? Where are you carrying stress? Now, the most common places that you'll see, like if you're in the midst of a hard season or a difficult storm that you're in, where people show this in their bodies, kind of signs of this is maybe gut health. Right? So maybe your guts are feeling off. Back pain is quite common. Hip pain. For me, it's neck and shoulder pain. That is like a key telltale sign for me that I'm carrying way more stress than I want to be. For others, it's headaches and migraines. Um, the man that I consider my godfather, though he doesn't know it, his name is Pete Scazzaro. He was a pastor in Queens. He always says this line, that your body is a major prophet, not a minor prophet. Meaning, listen to your body. What's it saying? To go a step deeper, so once you've kind of identified where's my body at, maybe you just feel full of energy, adrenaline, maybe you feel sick and tired, um, fatigued, listen to that to then answer the next question. Where's your mind at? What are your thoughts continually coming back to? What information are you replaying trying to make sense of? Maybe it's worry. Maybe you're trying to problem solve. But write those things down. Where's your head at? The second, or sorry, the third is this. What's the state of your soul? So your emotions. What are you feeling? Now, for some of you, the first answer might be, I'm just feeling super numb after what I've been through. Write that down. Because we want to, you'll begin to hear the deeper things you're feeling when you first hear your numbness. To go, I don't even feel able to feel. Then to ask the question, why? Is there a lot of sadness? Is there anger? Are you resentful? Are you fearful? Do you feel alone? What's being said in your soul? Just st stressed, overwhelmed? Those are the types of things that we're looking for. Then from there, we want to go to our deepest level, to the heart, to the spirit. What beliefs are there right now? And what beliefs came out of you in the midst of the storm? You know, we often see in movies, you know, when things are going real bad, 
people's true beliefs come out in the midst of that crisis. Um, I, I've even heard atheist communities that I've read online talk about how they hate when they cry out to Jesus in a scary traffic accident. Right, those true needs really come out. Those true beliefs really come in there. But what's the script of your heart? What's the story it's been telling? Once you've kind of done that full body, mind, soul, heart check to go, where am I at? You might find things surfacing in there of like, I've been really hurt by someone. I've been really disappointed by things. But we want to get what's going on inside your heart out. Then the next step is Jesus' sinless humanity. In Jesus' sinlessness, he is identifying what needs to be torn down, replaced, thrown away, or readjusted in our life. Because what we see in Jesus is just pure perfection, trust, goodness, love, devotion to the Father. What we see when we consider Jesus' perfection, what I see in myself is, oh man, these are all the liabilities in me. I was not trustful. I was not confident in him. I got real mad. I did some bad things. And so what we want is we want to see how good Jesus is and then reflect on the fact that, man, we're falling quite short on that. And we want to engage in that through confession and repentance. So what I want to look at is, is the whole impact of the storm and go, okay, what fell down? What's fallen apart? What weaknesses have we discovered in, in our home or in our marriage or in our finances or in our parenting or in our conflict skills? All these topics of the Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at them going, in the midst of this storm, did they hold up? Were they firm and stable? Or did did they fall apart in the midst of this hardship? Once we can kind of identify what's the damage, then we can ask the question of what caused this damage? Like, what's wrong with it that it couldn't hold up to the storm? The first category is this. It's just kind of the history. Like, maybe it's a, a pattern, a way that you've been living, maybe in your marriage or maybe in how you handle finances. Or maybe how you handle stress, right? So maybe it was anxiety. There's a pre-existing structure that you've inherited from your parents. And what we tend to do is just assume it's all good. But the storm reveals that it's not actually all good. And it's not all congruent with the way of Jesus. So it needs to be revisited and restored. So we want to confess and repent for that area. Even if we go, man, this isn't all my sin. It's more just kind of the sins of my parents and grandparents. This is how we, we all handle stress. You still want to name that and repent for your participation in it. The next category is self. This is where we recognize things fell apart in the midst of the storm because the weight of this area was not on Jesus, but was on me. Or it was something else that I put my trust in that's not Jesus. So we're really asking the question, where was your attachment to Jesus at in this area in the midst of the storm? Because what we tend to do is we go, oh no, the storm's coming in, the walls are crumbling around us, but I'm going to find solace, I'm going to find comfort in this. 
And for some marriages, that might be their spouse. But it's meant, we're actually meant to find connection to Jesus, not put all that weight on our spouse. Maybe in the midst of a storm, we try to spend our way out with money, get ourselves in debt. What we're meant to do is actually put our trust in Jesus. So we want to try and find those spots to go, where did I trust in myself or in things other than Jesus? And I need to confess and repent for that. The next category is works. These are the things that we do to try and keep things up, right? You're constantly fixing or upkeeping or putting a new coat of paint on a problem you know is there, but you aren't addressing the root through heartfelt confession and repentance. So what the storm does, though, is just blows that up, right? You knew the leak was coming, but you just try to cover it up with more effort and more works, and now the storm comes, and it's like that that leak is out, and everyone can see it. This touches the next point, which is avoidance. Those are the areas where we've neglected to make the repairs needed after the last storm, and now are repeating them. And we just tried to move on, being like, oh, thank goodness, that storm's over, we can get back to being happy. But we're not actually addressing the fact that that storm blew in a window. And we can't just get back to normal with a busted window. I think the next category that we start to see, though, is just What's my, not just the storm and the house and the life I built, but what was my response to the storm? Did it cause more damage than the storm itself? I think this is a key point for a lot of us who don't handle stress well. We get instantly overwhelmed and we actually create more messes in the house than the storm is creating outside the house. And then the last category is the response of others. Maybe other people in the home or in your life have done the same thing. Jesus' death is a demolition of what's already broken. This is really key. It's a deconstructing of something that is already falling apart. So it's not an attack. It's a, the reality is, is that we're going, even our strengths and our goodness and our abilities we're seeing can't hold up to the storms around us. We need something stronger. We need it to be Jesus. And whatever we don't repair, we will repeat. If it was damaged, then it needs to share in Jesus's cross because it's not of his nature. All that you have identified and believed in Christ enough to confess and turn from, Christ is able to remove with the promise to rebuild. So this is the point. We're bringing in Jesus for a full-blown renovation when the storm has wrecked our life or wrecked these areas of our life. What we don't want to do is have Jesus come in and say, can you just put a fresh coat of paint on it? No, no, no. We want to fix the problem. Now, the work of the cross does multiple different things. But the first thing it does is this, is, it's, is it offers us justification. Whether the faults lay with previous generations or yourself, Jesus pays for the damage and offers complete forgiveness. Because Jesus is such an accomplished builder, your house, at the beginning of the restoration process, 
already has a seal of approval from the Father. So it's like Jesus comes in going, I've got, I pulled a permit to do a build here, but I also have uh, the finalized okay for it because they trust me this much. This is what justification does for you. It gives you forgiveness for everything you've confessed and repented for and washes it completely clean, calling you good and perfect and righteous. The second area is propitiation. So this is why we want to confess and repent, because we know that there's grace to cover it. If you don't confess and repent, if you're reluctant to let the inspection be to go through, for it to be pointed out, to be marked for deconstruction, then it will stay the same forever. And no, you know, please forgive me prayer is going to cover that. It needs to be real repentance. With Jesus' propitiation, so that's his offer, his sacrifice, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This means there's no punishment. There's no lawsuits or damages needed to be repaid for about your bill before. Jesus is covering all of these costs with the brokenness of his own body. So all the pain, all the sorrow, Jesus is covering all of it with his propitiation. With his redemption, any liens on the house, second mortgages or outstanding debts are paid for by the blood of Jesus. That feeling of being stuck in bad situations or bad patterns or impossible situations is no longer true because you have a redeemer. Jesus is buying your freedom. So think of it like this. You've had this old house you've inherited with triple mortgages on it and liens on it and debts that are owed. Jesus is coming in not just to rebuild it, but to pay those debts. So we want to confess so that the debts are paid. From there, Jesus moves us into reconciliation, where the chaos of your home seemed to separate you from God and from one another. Jesus now reconnects you, securely attaching you to him with his favor. That you are in right relationship with God when you're in right relationship with Jesus. The the restoration work begins by reattaching it to the rock. So think of it like by this point, Jesus is tearing out and tearing down the liabilities. Now we're at the stage where it's clean, it's clear, and we're ready to start the rebuilding process. And Jesus' next step is adoption. This is the secure attachment. Where maybe a wall fell down. Your marriage fell down in the middle of this last storm. What Jesus is doing now is saying, don't go back to the way you were doing it. Don't just try and lift the wall up. Instead, we're going to build a new wall, and we're going to make sure that it is securely attached to the foundation. You are part of him, in him. The structure of your home and your life is all one with him. It's not separate. It's not another addition. It's in him, of him, from him, by him, through him. Your life and house is considered part of the square footage of the house of God. So it's a transfer of deed here to go, this is the Father's house. We're part of this. We're building this in him and of him. The next stage is sanctification. Jesus says, I'll remake this home now. 
but in my image. He presents to you a new plan, a new design, and walks you through the materials that he's going to use for it, all of which are him. He is the plan. He is the design. And he is the material in which he will build this life and this part of your home. The comfort of knowing that even in the midst of the storm, his purposes were going to win through, and this is going to be better than it ever was before this storm. That's the point we reach through the work of the cross. As we go, I am so thankful that we're going to redo this and do it right. Then comes Jesus' resurrection. This is the rebuilding stage. The reality of the resurrection is this. There is no job too big for Jesus' resurrection. Not even death can overcome him. So this shapes our reality. We look at, we go, we've, I've tried so hard for so many years to do this better, to make this better, and I couldn't do it. Because what it needed to do was die so that Jesus can resurrect it. Because what Jesus does is bring life. This is his jam. This is what Jesus did it all for. And he begins them with validation. The validation is this. This is a good project. This part of your life that fell apart in the storm, Jesus doesn't come in and go, ugh, this whole part of your life is worthless. Jesus does the opposite. Jesus says, this has value. This area of your life matters. And that's why it could only be built by me. Too often, I think we get the our bad craftsmanship or the materials that we just hawk together to try and build the life that we had. When we look at that and we go, this is garbage. And then we get that confused with that area of our life to go, I guess marriage is garbage. I guess screw finance. I'm not even going to try anymore. Uh, forget um, conflict skills. It's just going to be me against the world. We throw it all out. Jesus comes in saying, this matters loves and celebrates that part of your life and values it enough to say, I will resurrect it. Because every area of the Sermon on the Mount that he's saying, I have a vision, a new law, and a plan for this, and I want to fulfill this in your life, Jesus is saying he's going to do that through his life, death, and resurrection. That becomes possible because of the resurrection of Jesus. The next step in the resurrection is the new law. The law of love. This is no longer a life built for survival or a life built by striving or a relationship built by striving, but by and for love. God's love for you, your love for God, and his love in you for others. The ability to love having been loved by God. Love becomes the new specifications for this build or the new codes that need to be lived up to. The codes that Jesus is building by are all of this has to ex come from love, exist for love, and be enjoyed in love. That's the whole point of this. So when you like think about your you know your friendships or your relationships, the whole point here is going not just 
these are the one, two, three, four of how to have a healthy friendship. It's like, no, this is what love makes. This is what love builds. This is what love grows. This is what love bears fruit in. It's supposed to be this organic growing up into coming from the heart of God. This life that you live is made for love. That's the purpose. The next step is good works. Jesus has the skills, the tools, and materials for this project. What is the good that Jesus wishes you to do? What he wishes for you, he provides for you. This is your apprenticeship. So this whole area of your life, you're, you're relearning how to do it. And you're going to learn new skills from him. And so you can't, it's not healthy to expect instantaneous perfection from yourself. You're an apprentice. Jesus is teaching you how to build this area. Jesus is teaching you how to grow in this area. Jesus is moving you more and more into the ability to express, to act upon the good that you want to do. This is good works. Next is bodily resurrection. Do you not have the strength or energy to do the good that you want to do? Jesus does. Think of him as the table set up on site full of coffee, donuts, fresh fruit, sandwiches. You need energy? Get energy from him. This is the whole point of this idea that the strength and the energy that you need in your actual physical body to do the good that you want to do, Jesus is providing for it. And that his eternal promise to restore you to full-blown perfect humanity, there's foretaste to be had in the here and now for that. Lastly, in resurrection is the resurrection of all things. Listen, folks, believe in the vision. Like while you put your hands to the tools, pouring your effort out in one area, Jesus is going to be miraculously helping you grow that beyond your abilities. When we hear about the resurrection of the whole creation, this, your life is a foretaste of that. Jesus wants to be working, restoring goodness in your life, not according to the American dream, but according to his dream, his goodness, his law, his definitions of holiness and righteousness and love. Believe in that dream. So when you're doing the work, you're actually looking for miraculous like impact coming out in your life. And when you put your hand to the plow, you're working hard, you're hammering those nails, you're growing in Jesus. Don't be surprised when you turn around and find Jesus has been working in a whole other room in your house and his accomplishments are shining through and you can only describe them as miraculous. Jesus multiplies miracles. For those who truly are honest about where they're at, deeply, genuinely confess and repent for their sins, and seek to live the good life in God, He will bless it. He will grow it. He will multiply it. Lastly, Jesus' ascension. Where this all leads to is an open house. This is the result of it, is that it's a house that's good and open to the world and is a sanctuary to the lost. But it comes from a security 
in King Jesus as our sovereign Lord. We do not require the world to provide us with our stability. Not governments, not economists, not employers. We have our source of stability in Jesus alone. So the lives that we build, the houses that we build, are in his kingdom. I do not need Canada to be his kingdom. I have his kingdom. I do not need America to be his kingdom. I already have his kingdom. Next is fresh infillings of the Holy Spirit, that we be spirit-filled, that our lives and our homes will be anointed by his, his spirit with expressions of his personality and accomplishments. We want to see that kind of miraculous anointing on the bills that we're making, beautiful expressions of creativity and vibrance and life by the presence of the Spirit. Next in his ascension, we have Christ's church. Our lives and homes are to be little extensions of his church in the world, little temples filled with his glory. And so hear me, your house is a sacred space. It's not the church, but it is part of the church, part of his bride. And from that place comes the most natural thing in the world, that your life and your home shares in the Great Commission, that our lives and homes have been sovereignly placed by God the Evangelist to spread the good news of his kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through hospitality, acts of service, and generosity, we reveal Christ in a dark world. And this is what our lives and homes are called to do to shine brightly, and to exist as salt, to preserve the world around us, to love them, serve them in hospitality. Your home is not just for you. Your finances are not just for you. Your marriage is not just for you. Your friendships, all of it, your occupation, all of these things exist as God's sovereign act towards the world to save them as light in the darkness. But in all of this, we still look forward to the second coming of Christ. This life and these homes are not our forever home. Instead, we eagerly look forward to his second coming, when he will judge the quick and the dead, restore heaven on earth, and destroy evil once and for all. We hold all of this life loosely and hold on to him firmly. So this is why storms may come and storms may wreck stuff. Storms will impact us. Storms will reveal where we need the gospel anew. But we can handle, we run towards them because we don't have to fear them because they're not ultimate. For ultimately, our heaven, our true home, sorry, is in heaven. That's what we're looking forward to. That's where our hope lies. That's the true life. It's the life to come. And all that we have in the here and now is exists for the purpose to reveal the glory of Jesus in the gospel. This is just a pre-project to be like, let's see how the gospel works and put it to work in our life and our homes. But ultimately, our true home is the one that is coming for eternity. It's kind of like Jesus is playing with us as kids, going, let's build a fort. And we'll see if it can withstand this storm or this storm 
or this thing, and he throws pillows on top, and do the blankets cave in. It's fun. We get to see his handiwork as he dreams with us and we build, but to be honest, it's temporary. It has to get torn down at the end of the day. But the home to come, the bigger home, the one we truly long for, is being saved for us in eternity. That's the one we look forward to. That's the one our stability and security is in. So this, my friends, I hope serves you. If you've gone through a rough patch, I grieve with you. But follow the way of Jesus. Make it worth it. Find the gold in the midst of the storm that you've been through. Let Jesus rebuild your life. More importantly, let him inspect things to see the damage and the brokenness. Let him demolish the liabilities, the sin, the brokenness, the pain. Let him rebuild it, something glorious and beautiful in his image, that it would be an open house to the world, to the lost, as you await your forever home in heaven on earth with Jesus. This, my friends, is the way of Jesus.